from Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Wednesday, the 21st of October, 2020, and uh, we have a uh, good show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking first off with... Uh, Ken Picard, he is a uh, reporter with Seven Days. Uh, Seven Days is out with its weekly edition a little bit later today on the on the newsstands, and uh, we'll uh, feature a cover story about water in Vermont. And uh, the, the um, I think the headline was "Trickle to Torrent." I don't have it in front of me, but that was pretty good alliteration there. Trickle to Torrent, and uh, and then um, it also reminded me uh, of, of a book just out a couple months ago by Mary Trump, the niece of our president. I think the title was too much and not enough. So uh, maybe another way to describe Vermont's uh, water situation in this age of uh, climate change. Um, in the second half hour, we're going to be speaking with uh, Steve Pappas, the uh, editor of the Times Argus and uh, Rutland Herald. Uh, we're going to be asking him about the uh, latest news on the coronavirus outbreak that seems to be focused right in the Montpelier area, uh, beginning with a uh, with a uh, sports arena, the uh, Central Vermont Memorial Civic Center. Uh, hockey and broomball games were going on there, which uh, t- seemed to have been uh, turned out to be um, the source of uh, some spread of uh, cor- the coronavirus in the central Vermont area. Uh, hoping to line up one of our CBS News correspondents after the top of the hour break, and then uh, in the uh, second hour we're going to be talking about migratory birds in Vermont. Uh, this is time of year, obviously, when we have some visitors that we're heading south, and uh, uh, and we're going to be finding out all about the state of migratory birds in Vermont from Doug Morin of the uh, Vermont Fish and Wildlife Department as well as uh, David Mears who uh, actually is a former state official. He was the uh, commissioner of the Department of Environmental Conservation under under, uh, Governor Peter Shumlin. But these days he's executive director of uh, Audubon Vermont and so uh, we'll be uh, checking in with David and Doug in the second hour and finding out all about migratory birds in our state. Um, But let's get right into our conversation uh, with Ken Picard on this excellent story uh, in which he was co-author in uh, Seven Days. Uh, it's coming out today, as I mentioned, uh, should be on the on the website. Uh, Kevin, good morning. Uh, Ken, rather, <laughs> Kevin's the other author of the story, so pardon any confusion. Ken, uh, thank you for joining me this morning. Yeah, happy to be here, Dave. Thanks for inviting me. With Kevin McCollum, by the way, just to give full credit here. Uh, so um, yeah, absolutely. Any- Yep, um, and and so uh, really interesting, uh, interesting set of issues you guys looked into there, and it sounds like um, very important. Uh, pe- as in, you know, one of these stories where, hey, folks, uh, we need to be paying attention. And yeah, uh, well, it's <laughs> go ahead. It's funny uh, that you mentioned the politics um, because you know, just like our political situation, I, I think our our climate is being driven to extremes as well. Um, we are we are definitely seeing. You know, just in the in the last year, um, you know, I think people. It's easy to forget that uh, just about a year ago we had that big Halloween storm, 2019, and we had five inches of rain dumped down on us. It was completely unexpected, and uh, sent ten of our rivers up to flood stage. And um, you know, a year later, about half the state is under a drought condition. So uh, yeah, yeah it's it, it certainly a a lot can change in in a short amount of time here. Yeah, and um, what, uh, I mean, obviously both of these things present challenges to uh, public officials, in particular budget writers at the state and municipal level who are trying to figure out um, 
okay, uh, we got floods on one end of the spectrum. Uh, maybe we need bigger culverts and uh, uh, more more resilient uh, drainage systems and so on and so forth. Uh, um, and, and then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, maybe we need uh, better storage systems for water when it does come down. Um, are we making any progress on this stuff? Well, I, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, one of the messages that I got from talking to the experts, and, and I want to make it clear that I am definitely not a climatologist or even a, you know, a routinely an environmental reporter, but, uh, you know, when speaking to the folks up at the Gund Institute at the University of Vermont, you know, one of the things that they said to us was, you know, Vermont, you know, we should play to our strengths, and one of the strengths that we have is that uh, Vermont has been typically a water-rich state, and mm-hmm. if we protect those areas that are already wetlands and riparian areas and, and streams and rivers, I mean, it sounds kind of like a no-brainer, but when we use those that natural infrastructure, that will help us both in times of flooding, it will slow down fast-moving water, and it will also help get us through these dry spells that we've been going through. Um, and, and those are certainly expected to get longer. Um, I think a lot of Vermonters don't have much experience with long, multi-year droughts. Um, having lived myself before I moved here 18 years ago, I lived out in western Montana, and you know, forest, forest fires were just a normal part of life out there. Um, but, you know, to see this year, to see... Uh, you know, a, a wildfire burning underground in Killington. Uh, you know, that's a that's kind of a new thing for us. So, uh, you know, we, yeah. I hate I hate to use the expression "new normal" uh, gets overused, but I mean, we're we've got to get used to some different conditions. And um, I think you know, if we can protect the areas that we do have, um, those will definitely help us. Um, you mentioned you know building the deeper culverts and. And, you know, sort of these retention ponds and whatnot. I mean, I think those, those can help as well. We really need to slow down the water, um, and, and just, uh, you know, make things, uh, you know, have this water, uh, be able to absorb into the ground. Yeah. I, I, I mean, let's talk about the, the sort of, um, the drought end of it since that's the really kind of current, uh, right in front of us now issue even though i mean i look out the window here and it's uh there are raindrops on the window panes and and uh and it's a cloudy day it looks like uh, rain rain in the forecast and uh etc but i um uh your story indicates that the rain we have been getting really just in the last couple of weeks here in october uh is not enough to kind of uh offset the drought which has been the norm uh, in Vermont for the last what six eight months now? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Well, I, you know, I, you know, as we like to say in the newsroom, um, you know, the, sh- the the best way to get it to, to start raining during a drought is start writing a story about the drought. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, right about the time we started really diving into this reporting is when it started raining again. But you know, at the same time, uh, you know, folks all around the state uh, rely on. Uh, groundwater, whether it's natural springs or dug wells or drilled wells, um, those wells don't get recharged just because we had, uh, you know, a week or two of rain. Um, that water yeah. is going to – it takes a while to get down there. Um, mm-hmm. I live down in southern Chittenden County, and, and we're on well water, and thankfully we've, we've done okay. But, 
you know, I, I went out and, you know, talked to folks who, whose wells have gone dry for the first time in, you know, 15 years. And, you know, they have to have somebody show up with a, with a water truck and start pumping water basically right into the ground. And they're hoping it sticks around long enough for them to use. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the extremes don't necessarily help us when it comes to recharging that, those underground aquifers. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's a tough situation, especially for the folks who, who don't, you know, whose wells aren't as reliable. Would people be wise to, uh, you know, think about installing, uh, I don't know, rain barrels or some kind of other collection systems so that oh. when the, you know, the wet times, uh, help you store some water up for the dry times? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think anything like that can help for sure. I mean, um, one of the, you know, I spoke to a guy who, you know, owns a water company. He's been, he's been going out all nonstop all, all year. And, um, you know, he said it, sometimes it's it's really simple things that homeowners can do. I mean, we like to think of the, sort of the big multi-million dollar projects uh, to solve these problems. But you know, if you're on a well and you know your your toilet is running on a regular basis, um, you know, doing a you know twenty dollar fix can sometimes make the difference between your well running dry or not. Um, yeah. You know, when the when the lawn goes dry in the middle of the summer, you don't have to run your your sprinkler. You know, sometimes you just got to deal with it. You know, it, it's right, right, um, right. So, you know, it's these those little things sometimes can make a, a big difference in terms of, uh, you know, water just water conservation and I think, you know, Vermonters we've we've been accustomed to you know, having plentiful water, and it's and it's something mm-hmm. you don't really think about too much because we see it all around. Um, but you know, putting in lower flow shower heads and and you know fixing leaks, and you know there are Vermonters who will just let their water run, you know, a trickle all winter long so their pipes don't freeze. Well, you know, yeah. I mean that's that's draining that's draining the well too. Um, and and it's not just you know the individual homeowners. You know, I spoke to. Uh, Guys who run the, you know, the people who run these water utilities, I mean, they've had, there have been, you know, more than a half dozen water systems around the state, the state that have run dry, well, not run dry, but they, they've had issues with their, um, with their water supply. And so, uh, one of the things that the state has been doing is they have a free leak detection system. Um, they send out contractors and looking for, uh, these, you know, losses of water. And, uh, you know, this is a free service for these small utilities, but they're able to save hundreds of thousands of gallons of water per month um, just by just by identifying leaks in the system. And, and this is, you know, this has been a really good program for a lot of these systems. Was it Bethel you mentioned in the, in the story that did that, that actually found a leak and was able to really have a huge oh, yeah. impact like that? Oh yeah, I spoke to um, Tim Mills. He's the utility director there in Bethel, and mm-hmm. um, you know he said you know they brought in a they brought in this contractor to look for a leak. He couldn't he knew it was a leak because he just you know they weren't getting as much water on the other end, and yep. uh, he was able to spend. You know Tim said to me he spent six thousand dollars to replace seven hundred sixty feet of water line. I mean that's 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 nothing. That's pocket change, and he was. Saving two hundred thousand gallons a month, um, which is huge. I mean, and, and that's not yeah. just water; that's also that's also money 
in the system. That's water that doesn't have to be treated. Uh, that's water that doesn't have to be pumped out of the ground. So you save, you know, your utility costs. And, um, you know, the, the state's been able to do that as well, um, you know, all, all around the state. And, you know, they're saving like an Olympic-sized swimming pool every three days in terms of the amount of water. Um, and so, yeah. these, you know, these are – look, you know, when we start talking about climate change, I mean, there are, you know, dozens and dozens of impacts being felt. But when it, what it really comes down to is um, climate change, you know, it's all about water. And um, mm-hmm. and it's something that in Vermont, you know, where we recreate in water, we, we go fly fishing or we go swimming or boating. Um, but w- we really have to be thinking about this resource in a very different way now that we are going to extremes, either, you know, a drought or a flood. I think a lot of people who lived through Irene, I don't have to tell you, um, folks in central yeah. Vermont really got slammed with that. That was a wake-up call for all of us. Um, but, you know, it's really, it's all about the water. Yeah, that is, that is for sure. The... Um what is it about climate change? I mean, did you talk to any of the sort of scientists on the on the kind of physics theory of this stuff? Uh, I mean, why would climate change be causing these fluctuations between extreme downpours and then droughts? Um, well, I, you know, like I said, I, I'm not I'm not the the scientist on this, but um, you know, as things get hotter, um, you know, as uh, you know, our, our spring is arriving earlier. Our winters are starting later. Um, you know, we're just mm-hmm. seeing those sort of overall disruptions in patterns. Um, it, it just it just changes sort of the you know it weakens the ability of the entire system to sort of adjust. And so I, I think yeah. there are just extremes uh, on not just here in Vermont. But, you know, you just look out west and see what's going on out there. Um, I, I think it's. Um, you know, it, it's things are just going to extremes, and, uh, and yeah. hmm. a lot of it is just driven by, you know, the, the differentials in, in temperature and, and things like that. Um, you really have to talk to a scientist to get the, the yeah, big, yeah. dig deep well, into the uh, the causes of it. But I think what we have to be thinking about is, you know, how we how we adjust and how we adapt to it. Um, did you look into much uh, uh, the um the water extraction industry. I mean, there's a big uh, bottled water operation, I think, down in uh, somewhere in central Vermont, like around Bethel or someplace in there, um, uh, where I don't know if it's in Bethel itself, but some, somewhere down that way uh, where there's a, um, you know, there, there, uh, there's, there are companies or a company anyway uh, taking water out of the ground. Uh, there have been uh, concerns raised by some local residents that, uh, uh, you know, the company ought to be, Charge more basically for taking this valuable resource out of Vermont's environment and then making big profit off of it. Um, but the um, um, did uh, did you guys examine that that angle in the story at all? We we didn't, Dave. And and yeah. <clears throat> you know one of the one of the challenges with a story like this um, is you know people are writing books and and producing documentary <laughs> films on on climate yep. change, and and you could certainly do that here in Vermont. I, I think. Water, the water extraction industry has been a controversial issue. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's fair to say that um, uh, that these companies perhaps they should be paying more than they are, um, and we should be thinking and we should be evaluating these resources 
perhaps in a different way, <clears throat> you know, recognizing that the, you know, just because there's plentiful water right now, there may not be that much water, you know, a year from now. Um, right, right. You know, the folks at the Gund Institute said, you know, get used to the idea that we could be heading into multi-year droughts. And, that's, and scarcity. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, I think there are there are issues with the bottled water industry generally. Um, you know, let's face it, we have pretty good water here in Vermont, and, um, you know, I'm not sure that we need to be putting it in plastic bottles and, um, you know, and selling it, I think. <laughs> I think we should be, you know, protecting the resource that we do have for Vermonters um, and prioritizing their use. Um, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. There are there are still systems around the state, you know, utilities, water utilities, that just charge a flat rate for for their water. And so whether mm-hmm. you use, you know, a thousand gallons or five thousand gallons, your bill is the same. Um, you know, the federal government basically says. You know, if you want to get a federal grant to upgrade your system, you have to go to a metered system. Now, someone like um, Tim Mills in, in Bethel, you know, that would that would cost them a lot of money. You know, that cost them a half a million dollars to put in meters just to find out how much water they're using. And, and um, you know, he's got a pretty good system there for, you know, charging people, but it's still a flat rate. And, um, yep. you know, there may come a day when, when we're not doing that. Um when you know you're paying for what exactly what it is you use, and that yeah. becomes an incentive for people to to conserve more, to be more uh, sort of conscious of how much water is you know is coming into their house and how much they're using. I may have to get a climatologist on the air here at some point and say so what what and get an answer to that question because I'm kind of curious now. What is it about uh, climate change that actually results in these uh, strange fluctuations between very very heavy precipitation and not much at all for uh, extended periods of time so uh but it's, you guys really looked at the uh, at the impacts of what's been going on and uh, you had the one uh uh the farmer who's uh, who's been growing rice and i i've heard about rice growing in vermont uh it's kind of fascinating to me that anybody would even try that in this climate i usually think of it as as a, something you know that's done in much warmer climates but uh um that the farmer i don't recall the name i don't have it in front of me but um yeah that's um that's uh, eric andrus um kevin mccallum in- interviewed him uh, i know eric uh he is an interesting guy and he's doing um some he's been doing rice farming right there in uh in ferrisburg uh, virgin's area and um you know for him water has never been an issue he's he's in a low lying area um he yeah. uses mm-hmm. Uh, ducks to control, you know, weeds and, and, you know, pests and whatnot. Um, and he's never had an issue flooding his fields. Um, but this year he, um, you know, he, he's really taken a loss, um, like, like farmers in 10 of the 14 counties in the state. Um, yeah. and he's, he's really, uh, you know, he struggled as well. Um, you know, one of the things that we really haven't talked about up till now, we've been talking about sort of the water quantity, you know, either too much or not enough. But, you know, it's, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that it's this is as much about water quality. Um, yeah. You know, when you have when you have a drought and wells start getting really low, um, then you start running into contaminants getting into your drinking water, whether it's heavy metals or, you know, PFAS or, you know, these other, you know, sort of toxins. 
um, yep. or, you know, even in the extreme weather events of, you know, big floods and rain, when you get all these nutrients washing into, into our lakes and rivers and next thing you know, come warm weather and, you know, you have the um, cyanobacteria blooms. And, and that's a concern as well. Um, you know, a few years back, Toledo, Ohio, you know, they had to tell, you know, half a million residents to stop drinking their water out of the city taps because, of, you know, there was a blue-green algae bloom. And, um, you know, thankfully, we really haven't had that uh, issue yet in terms of basically shutting down a large water system here in Vermont. But that, that could happen. Um you know, mm. this is, you know, the, the cyanobacteria is, um, you know, that that could be pretty serious. There are, um, you know, it's it can give you, like, fluid symptoms, you know. Um, you know, these toxins can get into the air, and you can inhale them. Uh, it can cause... And it's concerned it's linked to uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, as well. Um, so, these you know, these concerns are very, very important. I commend seven days for uh, focusing our attention on them. Uh, unfortunately, we're about out of time for this segment of the Dave Graham Show. But, uh, Ken, uh, Ken Picard, I really appreciate you joining me this morning to uh, talk about the story. Pick it up in uh, seven days today, folks, and it will be on the website as well. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Dave. Uh, Bruce from Essex is on the line, but we're just about to head into a bottom-of-the-hour break. Bruce, I hope you can wait until after the uh, Bottom of the hour, CBS News Minute. A couple of words from our sponsors. Love to get you on the uh, on the air here. We haven't talked in a while, but uh, let's do that after the break upcoming. Uh, stay with us, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We are back, and I think that uh, Bruce from Essex is still on the line. Bruce, thanks for uh, staying with us here through the break. How are you doing this morning? Good, Dave. How are you? I hung up, but then I heard you mention me, so I called back. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I, I can't wait to read uh, the article in seven days. And mm-hmm. and I, I really agree with what Ken said, too. It's just not an issue of the quantity of water, uh, but it is also the quality issues. Uh, yeah. But I want to say one thing. When it comes to water in Vermont, uh, as Ecclesiastes said, it wasn't a lot about water in Vermont, but we can apply it. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, it's been a persistent issue in Vermont. Um, you know, uh, George Perkins Marsh, the guy who sort of everybody creates, uh, you know, uh, says this, uh, was one of the great environmental writers from Woodstock, made a speech in Rutland in 1847, and he talked about this feast or famine of water because we had done such a horrible job retaining our forests. And hmm. uh, um what we eliminated was what they call the forest sponge. You know, you think about it, you, you put a dry sponge in some water and it soaks it up. But uh, if you put a brick in a pail of water, it just displaces the water, doesn't soak it up. So that's what we had uh, then. But uh, it continued to be a problem. You know, the 
New York State listened to Marsh and did a fantastic job at protecting their forests in the Adirondack Park and down in the Catskills, in part because they were worried about retaining water for the New York City water system and also for the Erie Canal. In in 36, FDR came here and went to a, a water conference at the uh, State House. Any uh, had a news conference afterwards. I think they were still called press conferences in those days. And mm-hmm. uh, he, he criticized Vermont for not doing enough to preserve its uplands. Uh, instead of uh, it was focusing on recreational development. Dean Davis comes uh, around in the, the late 60s. He's talking about protecting uh, forests above 1,500 feet where we have the headlands of so many of our streams. And that's just not an issue of quality, but it, uh, quantity, but it is quality. And yet we mm-hmm. continue to kid ourselves that we can outsmart Mother Nature and we can continue to develop in forests and we're not talking about stopping it we're just managing it we build these bike trails uh which are nothing it's like termites in a two by four you know it's going to eventually weaken ecosystems and lead to sluiceways for water runoff so an amazing issue um i'm glad uh Ken's done this in seven days, and I'm really glad uh, you let off with it today because it it is a huge, huge issue. And uh, later you're going to talk about migratory birds, uh, and there's fragmenting of our habitat right now. It's all, just all holds together, and I'll I'll, I'll sign off with this marsh. Marsh once wrote, you can never know how wide a circle of disturbance we produce in the harmonies of nature when we throw the smallest petal into the ocean of organic life. So although we know a lot more than they did in those days, we need some humility before we continue to rush pell-mell in destroying habitat, uh, ruining forests, and uh, degradating water in this state. Bruce, thank you so much for the call. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's uh, very uh, thought-provoking stuff, and uh, I'm going to. Uh, I think I'm going to. It causes me to say to myself, I should. Need, I need to revisit this issue uh, in the near future and uh, delve more into these questions about uh, about the future of water in Vermont and in the United States. But uh, uh, there you go. Well, thanks again. Well, good to talk to you again, Dave. Yep. Take care. Bye. So uh, we have uh, our next guest is uh, Steve Pappas. He's the uh, editor and publisher of the Times Argus and Rutland Herald. And uh, Steve, I believe, is on the phone with us. Uh, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, considering uh, kind of a gloomy day in the last two weeks of, you know, I feel like a pretty heavy lift. But, no, I think I think everything's going pretty well. That's good. Uh, boy, I'll tell you though, uh, you, you guys have, uh, have had a unhappy, uh, story dumped in your laps uh, there at the Times Argus the last couple, the last week or so really with this news that, uh, of this outbreak, uh, basically right here in the capital city, uh, what's the latest? Well, so yeah, it has been, it's been concerning for sure. Um, we have seen, um, well, it kind of started in dribs and drabs. Um, last week, we got word that there were um, a couple of students, uh, well, a couple of individuals. We don't know that they were students, actually, who um, had uh, come down with COVID at um, in 
the Montpelier School System at Union Elementary School, and um, they shortly after that there were then reports that um, there had been a what appeared to be an outbreak of um, uh, positive tests um, as a result of some adult league and um, youth broomball and hockey games that were played at the Central Vermont Civic Center. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, again, as these things happen, it started out as relatively low numbers. We are up to 34 cases, I believe, is what we reported in today's edition Mm -hmm. um, of individuals who have tested positive. And while, while we can't um, there, nobody's making direct correlations to um, what happened in the school system. The, the concern is that there, you know, this this community has had um, a, a, an outbreak um, that is uh, certainly got folks on on high alert here. Um, you know, people were abiding by safety precautions before, but they really are now, um, and. Schools are, are acting appropriately um, and, um, you know, making sure that that students are, if they, if they are in the schools, they're they're being um, monitored closely and in the, in their respective pods, especially among the younger students who might be less inclined to be following the um, the guidelines and you know social distancing and all of those things. Um, I mean, it, it's a concern in the sense that the, the numbers keep growing. Um, and we haven't seen it plateau, um, but we haven't seen, um, you know, the, the, the tracers are, are the, um, the COVID tracers are definitely talking to kind of all of the individuals who may have had contact. Um, the good news is that it, it, it appears that a lot of the folks who are involved in this outbreak were all in the same place at the same time they were all it was all a um you know these these recreational um gatherings um of broomball or hockey uh and uh it, we we don't know exactly we've heard anecdotally but we do not know the exact breakdown of you know how many of these folks are young people and how many of these folks are adults but we do know that there are uh, adults involved here, um, the the broomball actually tends to be more of an adult um, uh, event at the at the at the civic center, um, and as you probably have already noted and reported, that um, the governor last week, as a result of the outbreak here and um, word from neighboring New Hampshire, which has also had a significant outbreak in its its hockey community, um, has down on all um, kind of ho- hockey for right now until we uh, see what happens and um, the facilities that are, are doing that are, are that provide hockey um, and rinks um, are on a at least a two week lockdown um, until we kind of see where this trend is going. But um, you know the bigger concern um, in a lot of ways has been. That there are teams that come and go. It's not just you know the Civic Center in Montpelier is not just for Montpelier. That there were folks coming in from neighboring communities, and um, they're they're definitely talking to people who might have been in the facility around the same time. 
um, and in, in urging people to, you know, if you feel like you may have had uh, contact with somebody that you that may have been infected or you've learned has been infected to go get tested. And, you know, we, we're, we're encouraging folks to do that, too, is that if there's any doubt, um, go get tested. Um, and and know, we have some special uh, pop-up test sites uh, that have uh, uh, shown up, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. There's one. There's there's one in Barrie, um, and I believe it's tomorrow. Um, and I should know that right off the top of my head, and I don't. Uh, but yes, there are a handful um, of. There's two actually, I believe. And you can and you can get tested at. Um, there are other locations around. Um, the, some of the clinics are doing it all the time. Uh, if you go to the hospital, they may not be able to do it right there, but they can. They can. Um, send you to the most appropriate places and the state provides state website also provides um, you know if you have questions call uh, off of the Department of Health website or 211 and they can redirect you to the best place to to, to go get tested if you don't want to be traveling uh, you know an inordinate amount and kind of playing that guessing game of where you need to go but yes there is a there's a pop-up test site in Barrie um, so it's you know, again, the, the neighboring school systems are the ones that are um, kind of trying to figure out, you know, if if there were kids or parents of kids who had interactions, and there, you know, it seems like the schools are really on high alert to be monitoring their students, and um, yep. you know, it's it's a tricky situation, but this is, you know, this is the largest. Uh, other than uh, the, uh, there was a pretty good outbreak, um, or not good, but there was a significant outbreak a few weeks ago um, uh, among some workers at a local orchard. Um, this is bigger than that one. Um, it, it's it's significant, and um, you know, it's it's probably since. Boy, I don't remember when it kind of started to level off, but th- this is these are the the most significant numbers we've seen in a while. And and again, we have not seen this is not we're not seeing deaths. It's that number has stayed stayed the same, and the social distancing and all of the guidelines are being adhered to. And in, in the and in state, uh, the governor and Dr. Levine are you know just telling people be smart about it. You know, be mindful. Um, if yep. you have any doubt, get tested. Let's uh, bring a listener into the conversation. I think we have John from Middlesex on the line. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Uh, I wanted to ask Steve, have you interviewed any of these uh, children or adults who have uh, uh, contacted this? And uh, what are their treatments? Uh, are any of them on ventilators or what are they taking for? Uh, we, we ought to find out how severe this is and where are they are they quarantining at home uh, are they out running around the streets uh, what's going on yeah, well, we, need, we need a little we need a little more more information on what's going on with these uh, people that are sick right you're making it sound um, like it's a terrible outbreak and it's a really uh, it's really uh, very serious but we don't know if it is or not the numbers are serious. Um, quarantine. How serious is it? I mean, are these nobody's? Is anybody hospitalized? Anybody on ventilators? Uh, what, how long are they have? How long do they have this? Um, well, that all What's the prognosis. The, right. Well, that that all depends on the person. 
Um, the state also is not under any obligation to identify, nor do they identify, who uh, the specific victims of COVID are. Um, so we have not heard, um, nor have we interviewed anybody who has contracted COVID as a result of uh, this particular outbreak. Um, quarantining means just that. They're supposed to be, um, you know, not in the public uh, while they are uh, waiting to find out if they are being clear. Um, we've not seen significant numbers of hospitalizations. It's, it has stayed pretty low in the, in the state. Uh, Dr. Levine and the governor have have indicated that. Has there been any hospitalization of these uh, people in Montpelier? We don't know. The the state's not obligated to tell us who is hospitalized and where. So uh, so, so, so we actually don't know. But we have not their families. Uh, are they quarantined at home with their families, uh, their parents, uh, older grandparents, or whatever? I, again, we we don't know. I don't have I don't, that. In, I don't that think kind you're giving us a very good uh, read on this story. You're telling us there's a major outbreak in Montpelier, but we don't know where that is. If we should go into Montpelier and walk around, uh, go shopping, uh, should we all stay out of Montpelier? No, not at all. I mean, as long as everyone's adhering to the the safety protocols, and everything should be fine. How do um, we know they are? I mean, kids are kids. I, I see them running up and down the streets all the time. Mm-hmm. John, I, I I think I get the uh, I, I get the uh, the general drift of your questions, which are reasonable. I mean, and I think I'm going to ask Steve though um, uh, real quickly before we go to our next break. Uh, do you think that the state should be more forthcoming with this kind of information about how you know, let's say from this outbreak, how many people have been hospitalized? Um, uh, are any in uh, you know uh, intensive care? Are any on ventilators? Are any in uh, in critical condition? Um, are, uh, you know, what's the average age, or what's the age distribution of the 34 people? You know, in other words, X, X number from 0 to 20, Y number from 20 to 40, uh, you know, all sorts of questions like that I think would help to, help to, um, shed the kind of light on, on this situation that, uh, our caller John suggests the public, uh, is interested in knowing. Do you think the state needs to be more forthcoming about this stuff? Well, I don't know. If it, I don't know if it's a state. Let me, uh, let, let, me let, let me let Steve answer the question, please, John. Steve, okay. you you have the floor. Um, so the so the the governor's press conference um, almost every time, um, and and they go for very long. They're they're a couple hours, but folks listen to them pretty pretty often and are interested um, and concerned, and they have heard. Um, that the the journalists in the state of Vermont are pushing very hard for more specific information um, mm-hmm. and wanting to know what the daily counts are and where where we're seeing upticks in actual hospitalizations and ventilator use and all of those different um, statistics that you have uh, put out there and uh, the state erroneously has in a few occasions said that they don't have to divulge information because of HIPAA because of uh, they feel it's a HIPAA violation and it is yeah. in, in some cases it is not it is just that they do not want to share the information and hmm. they are getting pushback from a lot of the Vermont Press Association um, and, the, and, and, and broadcast because that's just not true, um, and there are certain um, factors that the public really 
could use uh, in being able to make more educated decisions about whether they want to, whether they feel comfortable going out, whether they want to go yep. shopping, you know, all of those things. So, sure. John, John, well, I, wrong. I, I, John yeah, I, I get you. I just, just got, not, I get, just got one more thing, uh, Dave. Yeah. Uh, I take this very seriously, you know, and I'm an older person myself, and I just think that, uh, you know, with more testing, you're going to have more positives, obviously, and I think that uh, we need to know. It was very serious back in February, March. People were dying, you know, left and right, and we had, we've been very successful here in the state of Vermont. I think the governor's done a great job, but I think when you have an outbreak like this, People should be aware of where they can go and what's, what, what these people are doing. I mean, if you've got that many people, 30, 35 people, I forget how many it is, and uh, we know young people are, are less uh, susceptible to serious outcomes from this. Uh, yeah. They seem to be more resilient than us old guys, you know. So uh, I'm just, uh, just curious why uh, uh, you put out a big story like this, and it's sort of like, scaring everybody in Montpelier and the surrounding areas. I mean, I go into Montpelier a lot, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm a little leery to go out there if there's a bunch of people running around with us at my age, you know. Hey, I get so, you. Hey, John, uh, I got to get, but I appreciate you. I appreciate the call. You raised some good questions here. Uh, Steve, um, this has been a pretty dominating story in Central Vermont, but uh, obviously uh, other stuff is going on, too. What are some of the other top headlines in your area this, in this morning's paper? Well, in this morning's paper, um, you know, we have we're, we're kind of back uh, into the the routine of really getting into what's going on at uh, various town levels, and it's been um, we've we've had a, a handful of things taking place, kind of unfolding um, in in our communities, including you know talks about budgets and access to to public buildings, like the Barry City Hall recently. Um, eased some of its restrictions and there is, uh, you know, allowing folks to, to come in and, um, on certain days. And, um, so there's this kind of push toward normalcy, but there's also, um, lots of discussion about, um, coming up in, in Berlin in particular. Dave Delcor was up there uh, earlier this week and, um, there's concern over, Use of um, some of the public roads up there in wintertime as access for snowmobilers who are trying to get from one trail to another, and um, the the community there um, really beat up on uh, select board and some other folks, some other town officials, in saying that they do not want um, snowmobilers racing up and down. Um, you know, small sections of of the the public right of ways um, in in kind of the, the back sections of Berlin um, mm-hmm. that would cross them over into trail networks in, in Northfield, and uh, that has uh, that particular issue is a hot one because um, it's a major intersection, uh, Berlin has a, a major intersection for uh, the vast network and yeah. um, so it's uh, it's it's become an interesting and contentious issue and they 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 had made some decisions and then and then kind of had to walk those back a little bit and then the other thing that's going on there is they're trying to figure out the uh, best way to replace retired police chief um, Dick Wolf 
Um, they've had a couple of candidates, and one who uh, the finalists are one who's local and uh, one who's been an under sheriff in a, um, a, I believe, in New York State. And they're down to the two finalists, and they're they're uh, going to be deciding who the, who will be replacing the police chief. So that's mm. coming up, um, uh, and that that department has had some. Some issues with staffing over the years. Um, it, yeah, it's yeah. kind of a, it's had a high turnover, and then um, they had the unfortunate um, incident last week of uh, having one of their part-time uh, officers, longtime part-time officers, um, was involved in that murder-suicide in Barry Town. Yeah, um, yeah. So tough times uh, for the community there. Um, yeah. Hey, Steve Pappas, uh, we are uh, fast approaching the top of the hour, uh, and I want to say to Marsha from Barry, who's on the line, <laughs> going to have to wait till after the break uh, for your call if you're still willing to hang on there, Marsha. Uh, I do have a little time right after the uh, top of the hour. Uh, CBS News and a couple words from our sponsors. We'll be back uh, shortly, folks. Thanks very much, Steve. Yeah, my pleasure, Dave. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. Shame about Keith Bar- Keith Jarrett there. He truly is a, a wonderful pianist and uh, somebody whose uh, recordings are well worth listening to. Um, hey, uh Marsha from Barry's uh, very kindly been patient here. Uh, w- wanted to get to her before the top of the hour break. Didn't work out, but she's still on the line with us. So good morning, Marsha. Yes, I am. Morning, Dave. Thank you very, very much. I had a calm comment about the uh, the information or lack thereof about the outbreak in Mont- Montpelier. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think part of the pro- part of the problem is that this state has a history of of reticence to be forthcoming, and this includes information about the scandal in Newport and and getting police police camera footage in Burlington. Mm-hmm. They always take a, an, an excruciatingly long time to get information out. And I think this is possibly part of the problem. There is a, there is a pub, pub, public health ex, ex, exception to, to the HIPAA regulations, which I'm sure mm-hmm. that Steve knew about and, and that the press corps knows about. But I think it's I think it's part of it, um, and I mean, when have have we heard from anybody in the health 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 in the health department about anything really before this 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 year? They have been quietly doing their jobs for decades, and all of a sudden yeah. comes this. And I think really um, truth. Um, giving facts and reassurance goes a long way to to en- engendering trust in 
the people. And if the state feels we don't trust them, well, they need to be more more forthcoming. It it really, really helps at this time to alleviate anxiety. Marsha, I couldn't agree more, and I, and I do think it's a really legitimate question that we had from uh, John from Middlesex in the last hour, who called in and basically wanted to know, is it safe for him to go shopping in Montpelier right now? Um, I now you, heard you, know, him and, you know, I think just reiterating the um, the steps that we've got to take from the health department and mm-hmm. with a little bit more delineation of where things are would really, really help because anxiety at this time, particularly of us older folks, really is 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 acute. And reassurance is is an enormous help. And I just wish that they would do a little more. Yeah, I mean, here's here's the thing, Marsha. It's it's so hard to know uh, how how uh, how much how to weigh the risks involved. I mean, you know, it, it, to me, it sounded a little bit extreme for somebody to worry about. Oh my word, I can't go, you know, shopping in downtown Montpelier for fear of getting the coronavirus now because of these uh, these uh, thirty five or so people who have who have uh, tested positive, um, and. Meanwhile, you know, I have loved ones, family who uh, live in places like, you know, my my son is in Phoenix, Arizona right now. My brother's in San Diego. My sister is in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, I could go down the list here. They're spread around in places which have had, throughout the pandemic, much higher much higher numbers and higher risk levels uh, in Vermont. And I thank God that none of my kin uh, so far, uh, as far as I know, nobody's told me anyway that they have. Uh, Come down with a coronavirus, and and uh, uh, and so then I say to myself, well, you know, they've got to get out, uh, you know, at least on a, maybe a weekly or occasional basis to get some groceries, right? So they're they're out there navigating their communities in places like San Diego and Phoenix and Dayton, and um, and they are uh, living their lives in a uh, somewhat more restricted fashion as you would expect, but. Um, it, it, it's not as it may not be as scary as uh, as we think here when we say, "Oh my word!" With 35 cases, can I go into downtown Montpelier? You know what I mean? So it's yes, just really I hard do. to. And I and I do 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 I do agree with you that the that uh, when you think 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 about it. Mm-hmm. And you understand what's with your fam, your fam, family, and you have the information that thank, uh, that thank God there's nothing, there's no sickness with them. But I and I think the guy, I think the guy that called was quite quite anxious. And yeah. um, I think it's partly because there's this mix of news. There's this mix of uh, there's this mix of the local with the, with the numbers with the with the with the lack of information that might help a little more. Added to the stuff that's going on in the rest of the country. It yeah, comes yeah. on 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 the same time on the same news report, and it's hard to separate it out. Yeah, I, Marsha, I, you I, know, and I agree. That's and, why and, 
No, that's and why I think the state's got to just be a, a bit more forth, 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 forthcoming, and it's not their history. And yeah, I yeah. think, you know, that, that's all. Marcia, thank you for the call. And and by the way, I I don't want to be uh, anybody to interpret my remarks as as at all critical of our caller John from Middlesex in the in the in the first hour. I'm not saying he's exaggerating this situation. I'm just saying it's a sign of the uncertainty of the situation uh, that people are having these questions. And um, and 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 I would agree with him uh, that they need to be more effectively answered by our public health right. authorities. That's what it comes down to. So. Right. And I don't think that you, that you were doing that at all. That didn't come, come across, but his, okay. but his, <laughs> yeah. his amount of anxiety is real. And yeah, that's real. And, and, and yeah. it needs to be acknowledged and, and it needs to be answered, basically. Yeah. Uh, you know, do you, do you, the question is, do you need to be this worried? You know? Uh, and, uh, well, and I guess, it's a mix. It's a, yeah. it's a mix of how, of how, how, how much the individual can manage and take and what yeah. the authorities are willing to give us. And I think the authorities need to give a little bit more because there is a health, there is a public health exception to HIPAA yep. and they need to thread that a little better. Hey, uh, Marsha, thank you very much for calling this morning. It's always good talking with you. You're so welcome. Thank you, Dave. All right. Hey, let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit here. Get, get, uh, take a break from politics and from coronavirus and all of that stuff that we talk about probably too much here on the Dave Graham show and, uh, talk about migratory birds. Uh, fascinating topic to me. And obviously many people value birds as a very important part of our environment here in Vermont. The natural world, of course, is as lovely as ever, uh, threatened in certain respects, but, uh, there's still a lot of it out there that is to be enjoyed and cherished. And we have a couple of folks here who are experts on migratory birds and on birds in general. In fact, uh, Doug Morin from the uh, Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife is with us. Uh, Doug, thank you for, very much for getting on the phone with us this morning. I believe Doug Morin is there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, good, good. Glad to hear uh and uh and david mears uh david is actually a former commissioner of the Inver- vermont department of environmental conservation uh who uh, now is the executive director of audubon vermont the uh state chapter of the national audubon society and david thank you very much for joining us today as well thanks for having me on and uh the uh the news here on the on the uh migratory bird front actually is that uh the legislature this year, I don't know if it got a whole lot of notice, but, uh, passed a, passed a new law related to migratory birds. And, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, David Mears, you could give us a little, uh, just an in- initial description of, uh, what the bill does. Yeah. It was exciting to see this go through. And it, it passed with, uh, really huge. In fact, I don't, I think there may have been like one no vote at some point in the process, but for the most part, um, all the votes on it were by voice vote and were by uh, kind of unanimous acclamation. So it was one of those rare moments where everyone came together, regardless of party, to kind of speak up and support birds. But the mm-hmm. um, the law is fairly simple. It it simply it addresses a, a problem that was created when the current federal administration rolled back an existing federal law called the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which has long been held to address to kind of prohibit killing birds 
even if it wasn't necessarily your intention, I mean, the law very clearly prohibits shooting birds, you know, intentionally killing migratory birds. But mm-hmm. it's also been interpreted to cover instances where you knew it was likely that your action was going to kill a bird, but it, you didn't necessarily want shooting it for that purpose. So, for instance, the, the British Petroleum, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, caused the deaths of, of many millions of birds. And so that was a, a case in which the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was applied, even though they didn't spill the oil to cause bird deaths. They knew that would be a result. So uh, in the in the face of that gap created by the federal rollback, the, the state legislature uh, passed a law that says in Vermont, uh, if you are taking an action that you know is likely to cause the death of a, a bird, and that will have some you know, significant impacts on that bird species, and that's a prohibited act, and it's it's that simple. Let, let's let's roll it back a little bit here and just talk about migratory birds in general, if we could, uh, Doug Moore. And um, what uh, and and this is a good time of year to do this because I would I would uh, you know it looks to me like uh, there are some migratory birds that are passing through Vermont, maybe uh, which uh, you know summer in Canada and uh, winter somewhere down south or in you know even in the tropics or South America, um, and uh, they're passing through uh, this month. Uh, what are what are some of the leading species here? Absolutely. Um, so we have about 300 species of birds that have been documented in the state of Vermont. Um, a little more than 200 of those regularly breed here. And as you say, fall is a good time uh, to see migratory species. Um, almost three quarters of our species in the state are migratory in one way or another. So right now we have species that are leaving Vermont for places farther to the south, either the southern U.S. or even Central and South America. We also have species that are coming down through Canada from places farther north, and they're going to continue to the south. And we've even had the first reports of some species that spend their winter here because it's so nice and warm and balmy compared to their high Arctic breeding grounds. Yeah. So we have a whole bunch of things moving around right now. Um, you can see a variety of warblers and sparrows are kind of small songbirds, as well as a lot of raptors like hawks, um, eagles, uh, loons are still on lakes. So there's there's a lot of activity out there. And uh, I think one of the one of the migratory birds that we uh, get noted most frequently, just because of you know it's visually. Uh, very obvious and so on is the Canada Canada goose, which uh, fly in those big uh, V-shaped flocks. Uh, and uh, uh, talk to us a little bit about those guys because um, they they, um, they you know they've been passing through and and uh, uh, where do they summer and where do they winter? Absolutely. Um, so goose have been a real. Um kind of success in recent years they've been growing uh, maybe even a little bit more than we want them to but they've been doing very well Um, so we have resident Canada geese that stay and breed in the state and then we also have migratory geese that are coming through from farther north and um, geese don't make a super long trek they're basically just going to go south as far as they need to to find some open water some grass to eat that kind of thing Yeah, so they're a real success story. Some people may also know the snow goose, which is a popular kind of fall sight to see. Right around this time of year, they start coming down. They're an all-white goose, and they breed uh, in the Arctic of Canada. A great place to see them is at the Dead Creek Wildlife Management Area, but any any open field in the Champlain Valley might be a reasonable place to see them, too. 
Yeah, uh, that, that's uh, they, that's quite a striking sight there. That Dead Creek in the around this time of year really is is something to see sometimes because uh, a lot of birds <laughs> and uh, it's just it, you know it's just an amazing thing. To, uh, and they um, when, when you say they, they uh, that the the geese are flying just south far enough to find open water and and, and some grass to eat and so on. Um, I'm thinking like the Delmarva Peninsula and maybe the Carolinas, the Carolina coast. Is that uh, is that about where they go, or or uh, how do we? Uh, what's the general rule there? Yeah, so a lot of these birds, including geese, um, will basically only go as far as they need to. So sometimes it's southern New England if there's not a lot of snow and ice cover. Um, mm-hmm. Coastal environments, like you're saying, are perfect for a lot of that waterfowl because you get the open water. You get the moderating influence from the ocean. So a lot yep. of our waterfowl, um, geese, as well as all of our loons, basically head to the Atlantic coast of New England and, and south from there. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. And um, now let, let's focus on the sort of problem here because uh, – this I, I, I was reading up a little bit last night about this sort of ongoing issue with a lot of birds, which is that um, they are they end up getting uh, kind of caught up in, in industrial operations that often kill birds, uh, and there's always a question of how uh, you know what what degree of intent was there by the industrial operator to to kill birds. In other words, are you, do you just re, are you just regarding them as pests and and trying to kill them because you don't like them, or or they you know they cut in they damage your operations or are perceived to and cut into your profits, or or are you um, is it more of an accidental and kind of incidental issue where, for instance, people have looked at the wind power industry for quite a while now as a as a source of bird kills. Uh, put up those big wind tower blades on the mountainsides, and uh, when a flock of birds flies through, some of them are going to co- collide with the uh, with the spinning blades and and uh, meet their demise. Uh, David Mears, uh, talk to me a little bit about that. How 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 big and widespread a problem is this? Well, when you look at it nationally, it's a it's a significant problem. Um, when uh, there was a, a there's an organization that the Department Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife is part of called the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, and they did they surveyed states across the country uh, and looked at what are the kind of the top threats um, to birds from industrial activities. Uh, one of the things that you know we of course don't have to worry about here in Vermont, but that's a problem nationally has been oil oil and gas operations. Oftentimes they'll have you know, for instance, they'll have drilling uh, uh, material as they pump out their their wells or pump out, the, you know, as they drill, there'll be these kind of large ponds that are created and are full of oily water that's mm-hmm. deadly for birds. And it's a pretty simple matter to kind of put netting over those ponds and prevent the birds from landing there and the associated bird deaths. Um, and that used to be prohibited under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and isn't isn't anymore. So they are... They're, that, and that tends to be the kind of category that this this kind of law and the Vermont law is focused on. In Vermont, mm-hmm. the kinds of issues that might come up are, as you kind of described them, it might be incidental in the sense that it was the purpose of, for instance, having wind towers or, or power lines isn't, of course, to kill birds. But if they're not sighted correctly, if they're not, if the appropriate kind of protections are put in place or, or the kind of best practices applied, they can result in significant bird deaths. So 
Um, one of the things that this law in Vermont requires is that the state has to, uh, the people in the state of Vermont that are running these kinds of operations have to check in with the Department of Fish and Wildlife to make sure they're applying best practices. Yeah, that's, that is a, um, and of course best pra- practices, uh, you know, I, I'm sure there are some folks out there who are, who are in business or working in these industries and so on and, uh, they hear the phrase best practices and they go, oh, that's gonna cost me. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the issue is, is, is it, is that the, uh, private businesses out there who looking to cut costs and, and, uh, maintain the profits and so on. Not really that interested. I mean, if you if you uh, can save, uh, you know, a few uh, multiples of ten thousand dollars on on netting over your pond, um, you know, there's I'm sure there's a lot of folks out there who say I'd like to do that, but uh, that's not the um, that's not the way to go. I guess is what you're saying. Yeah, it's not. And honestly, in Vermont, it's a different ethic. You know, whether it's a power company or the, the wind towers or the transmission towers, my experience has been, you know, Doug can weigh in on this as well, is that when we describe to them, to folks, uh, what the issues are and the kinds of practices that they need to take, it's not, it may be a headache, but it's not, this, it's not the, it's not the kind of practices that are the choice between whether it's economically profitable or not. Yeah, an example that I, I testified about um, when I was at the legislature is um, that kind of to me demonstrates how simple this can be is one of the ways that uh, birds can get impacted is for instance when there's infrastructure being built or maintained so mm-hmm. imagine you know a bridge in your local community and the you know the town needs to strip the paint off and repaint it and get the rust off and repair it and there's a bunch of uh, you know cliff swallows nesting there the, the practice may be as simple as just wait until they're done nesting and all the chicks have fledged before you do the, the work. Yeah, uh, it, it may be a delay, and that may be some additional cost, but you know, there, it's a pretty simple um, a way to to avoid a significant number of bird deaths. And when the birds return, they have a nice, freshly painted bridge. So that's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Better accommodations. Um, the the um, the Trump administration uh, has uh, been looking to relax a lot of environmental regulations, and uh, and this is one of them. I guess they uh, the Department of Interior uh, came out with a, a rule back in uh, 2017, which uh, basically said we're not going to interpret this uh, federal uh, MBTA as it's known. Uh, I used to think that was a subway system in Boston, but anyway. Um, the uh we're not going to interpret this law anymore as requiring companies to take these extra steps um and that's really the nub of the issue right now isn't it um that that is it that's the the nub of the issue I, that that particular decision that opinion was challenged in court by national Audubon society and others including a few states and uh just about a month ago a federal court in the federal court in the district of new york wrote a pretty scathing opinion shooting down the interpretation, finding it was pretty deeply flawed. So, um, while that's good news in the sense that the the law, that interpretation has been struck down, we're still, uh, you know, the administration continues to pursue a form of rulemaking and is clearly not enforcing the law the way it was intended to be enforced. So it remains a, a problem at the national level. Yeah, and... Um is there some pending stuff that could take effect even into next year here? I was a little confused as I kind of skimmed a couple of news reports on this last evening. Um, 
what is this current, the real current status here? Well, the, the, the actual legal status is that the, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act at the federal level remains in effect, and the interpretation that the Trump administration was suggesting has been struck down. Okay. Um, but at the, at the same time, the, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has issued a draft rule that would um, adopt that opinion all over again. Hmm. Arguably, you know, that's a waste of, of their time and the court's time and everybody's time to do that since it's already been found uh, illegal. But nonetheless, they're pursuing that rule. They've made it clear they intend to issue it. And it seems, while they haven't said this specifically, it seems pretty clear that they're also not intending to enforce the law. So in some ways, uh, the, the fact of the court decision striking it down almost doesn't matter because the executive branch, in this case, gets to decide whether they want to enforce or not, and they're choosing not to. Yeah, I want to talk more about that after we go to a, a little uh, out of the hour break. Actually, I guess we have one more minute here. I noticed in the state bill, uh, in the state law now, um, that uh, the uh, the commissioner of wildlife, fish and wildlife can decide not to enforce its discretionary enforcement. Uh, couldn't people raise a criticism and say that that's pretty much the same deal the feds are talking about? Uh, yes, and this, but it's that kind of just captures what the law is in any way. If, even if that language hadn't been in there, it's it's pretty commonly understood that you know an agency doesn't have to enforce the law; it's in their discretion. Yeah. And then, you know, if people don't like that, they can make a fuss, you know, about it politically. All right. Well, let's let's continue. Uh, let's continue our conversation after uh, this bottom of the hour break. Upcoming CBS News and a couple words from our sponsors. We'll come back to our conversation with uh, Doug Morin of the Fish and Wildlife Department and David Mears of uh, Audubon, Vermont. Back shortly, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rock and Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. My guests are David Mears of Audubon, Vermont, and Doug Morin of the uh, Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife. The subject is migratory birds, and uh, I believe we have a listener on the line. Fred's calling in. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. Hey, my question is, I've heard about it, but I don't know if it's true or not, and that is birds are sensitive to uh, atmospheric pressure changes, and migratory birds can hear very low frequencies, and these skills or traits enable the bird to determine whether the weather is going to be favorable or unfavorable, and they also can hear the, uh, the uh, surf crashing along the coast. Hence the Atlantic Flyway. Have you ever heard that? Uh, uh, Doug, why don't you take that one? Sure. Um, So I'm not sure about all of the details of of what you're mentioning, but we do know that birds have a number of senses that exceed what humans are able to sense. So, for instance, they can see in other spectrums of light, And we know they can sense um, the magnetic fields of the Earth is one of the ways that they migrate, uh, they navigate during their migration, sometimes thousands of miles to wind up in the exact same spot. 
Um, it can vary species to species, so I wouldn't be surprised at all um, if some birds can sense uh, those stimuli that you're mentioning. Interesting. Um, Fred, any other questions? Uh, no. Uh, okay. I thought, it, I thought it was very interesting because of the Atlantic Flyway, you've got a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, low-frequency sounds because of the surf crashing. And I'm pretty sure in my reading I heard that uh, especially geese and other migratory birds can hear that low-frequency sound, and so they know where the coast is, and therefore they can fly down the coast and hence the Atlantic Flyway. That's an interesting uh, theory. I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, um, but uh, I'm certainly far from the expert on it myself. Uh, thanks for the uh, for sharing that, though, uh, Fred, and uh, thank you for the call. Let me uh, let me go back to asking. Uh, well, I, I wanted to actually run something by uh, uh, David and Doug here as well, um, which is uh, when we talk about migratory birds in particular. Uh, there's a bit of an international flavor here because some of the migra- migration routes uh, extend up into Canada as well as down into Central and South America. And um, and I'll give you one example of a interesting issue that raised uh, several years ago here in Vermont. I remember as an AP reporter back in the day, I was covering public service board hearings. Now it's the Public Utility Commission, but back then it was the Public Service Board. The on on the uh, Purchase of electricity by Vermont utilities from Hydro Quebec, and uh, and there was sort of this initial push from the utilities, which said uh, opponents to the purchase uh, don't really have much of a leg to stand on because uh, concerning environmental effects, because uh, uh, the environmental effects of the Hydro Quebec uh, dam development projects uh, way up in northern Quebec, of course, are in another country, so we don't have much control over them under Vermont law, and then the uh, uh, the, the, the sort of critics of the project came back with a, what looked like a novel legal theory at the time, uh, saying that, well, actually, um, the, uh, there is an, uh, there is an environmental effect in Vermont because, uh, some of the reservoir projects up in Quebec are actually harming, uh, bird populations, which spend part of their year here as they pass through from, from, uh, northern Quebec to, uh, to points south. And, uh, uh, David, I don't know if you has that ever come to your attention before, and I'm wondering, um, you know, is this is this something that is not completely unique? In other words, are there other instances in which uh, migratory birds are, um, are 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 kind of getting the international issues, shall we say? Absolutely, yeah. No, in fact, there are. The United States has treaties with Canada and Mexico, and with other countries like Japan and Russia and Great Britain. Um, that are focused on the protection of, of migratory birds for that reason, where, you know, each country is essentially committed to protect those birds while they're in, within its borders. And that's important. You know, we have, we have the birds, you know, that, that Doug's talking about that have been migrating through in Canada are one example. We have a lot of birds at, in Vermont that are, uh, that migrate all the way down to Mexico, Central America, the Dominican Republic, and, uh, Cuba, places like that. Uh, mm-hmm. The Vermont Center for Eco Studies is a, an organization right here in Vermont that has done some amazing research on the Bicknell's thrush and showing its kind of migratory routes and realizing that we have to protect habitat in both places. Vermont has this incredible forest habitat that, that is some of the richest species diversity uh, in the Atlantic Flyway. And if we don't protect it for our birds, um, these, it doesn't, you know, 
that that's a it's a kind of the critical breeding grounds for these birds. And Doug can kind of give more detail about it, but there's definitely an international flavor to the importance of protecting these birds. Doug, Doug let me get your thoughts on the same or similar question. Of what can you what can you add? Yeah, absolutely. So birds really force us to zoom out when we're talking about migratory aspects. Uh, about half of our breeding birds that do migrate stay within the U.S. Um, so some mm-hmm. just go to Massachusetts and some go to Florida, but about half of them leave the U.S. entirely. So a lot of them are going to Central America and, either, and even South America. Um, you could even make the case that the birds are up here basically from you know late May through August, maybe three, four, five months. So they're actually not here more often than they are. Uh, so a lot of people will say, well, actually, these are South American birds. They just happen to breed in Vermont, uh, <laughs> which kind of turns the issue on its head and makes you realize that if, if we want to conserve these birds, we need to be thinking about their whole life cycle, about the effects of agriculture uh, in their wintering grounds, about where their important stopover habitats are to make that migration, because it takes weeks for many of these birds to move from the north to the south. So every single place they stop in between is critically important to those birds. Yeah, that that really is interesting. And, of course, uh, I mean, this is pretty obvious, but... um Birds do not recognize, I don't think anyway, the uh, international borders. Uh, you know, they, they don't they, they don't stop in Highgate on the way into Canada. <laughs> so that's right. Um, and and David Mears, uh, I'm wondering uh, what you know about in terms of this uh, Vermont legislation that is basically trying to uh, shore up protections for uh, migratory birds in the face of, uh, shall we say, a, a diminished level of protection the Trump administration is trying to impose. Um, I'm wondering, do you know um, what is happening in other states in this regard? Are, are a lot of states jumping into this uh, breach as Vermont is? Yeah, there were some states that already had laws that uh, provided this level of protection. Most didn't because, frankly, everyone, it's a its a really a national level issue, and most states relied on the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which was passed in 1918. <clears throat> Oh, it's one mm-hmm. of the longest-standing environmental laws in the country. Um, but, yeah. yes, in, in the aftermath of 2017, I think this organization I mentioned, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, began to kind of share um, ideas with states around the country for ways they could um, improve protections, either through interpretations by attorneys general's offices or new legislation like Vermont has adopted. I, I don't have at the tip of my fingers kind of which, which states have, have adopted new laws. I think... Vermont's probably on the early side of adoption. Uh, it went through, I think it's kind of a testament to the leadership in our, uh, in our legislature and to Commissioner Porter at Fish and Wildlife and to the governor that it moved so quickly here in Vermont. So I think we're a little ahead of the curve, but I, I know that other states are looking at what we've done in, and uh, trying to replicate it. I know my colleagues in other Audubon state offices are absolutely looking at what we did and trying to replicate it. The... Uh, um yeah, and, and obviously these issues, as you say, are uh, if they don't, uh, nece- if birds don't necessarily uh, care much about international borders, they definitely don't care about state borders either. So uh, these are issues which are as uh, as live in a, in in other states as they are in Vermont right now. 
Uh, I believe we have a listener checking in with us. Uh, Bill from Burlington is online. Good morning, Bill. Bill, are you there? Nope, this is John Mike. I'm sorry? No, this is a different caller, but I was just curious about, uh, you know, what the wind turbines, you know, all our uh, power turbines that we put up on our mountains, what kind of effect they're having on uh, the migratory bird population. Good question, and one which uh, I think we sort of touched on earlier, but not directly. So let's go. Let's let's head it. Uh, let's go into it uh, straight on here. Uh, David Mears, um, what kinds of uh, effects have wind towers in Vermont had on our migratory bird populations? As far as we know, uh, based on the, the monitoring data that the, the companies operating the wind towers have been keeping, there's not been any significant okay. impact on bird populations. Um, with that said, it's certainly a possibility and a potential. We've seen, you know, in other parts of the country, there have been wind turbines that have had pretty significant impacts on um, certain kinds of hawks and, and eagles and so forth. Uh, it, it turns out also that it's fairly straightforward to, uh, you know, there, to the extent that there's um, impacts that are identified, it, it tends to be at certain times of the day or certain times of the year where uh, bird populations will be migrating through a mountain top or mountain ridge or a gap area where there might be <clears throat> potential impacts, and it's for the three flow for the wind companies to then you know slow or stop the turbines during those times. But as far as I know, there's not been an impact in Vermont. Doug, Doug may have more specific data on that. Doug, uh, what do you know here? On that, my only comment on that is I mean, we're expecting them to audit themselves. That's like the police auditing themselves or uh, you know oil companies or whoever. I mean, that seems. We ought to have an outside company, you know, looking at this, not the companies themselves. Why would they not look out for their own best interest? Uh, it, it's a, it's a uh, legitimate point I think you're making there, caller, and thank you very much for checking in. I want to ask uh, Doug Moore. And, uh, Doug, do you, do you have anything to add on this score on the impacts of uh, wind turbines on bird populations in Vermont? Sure. So, um, folks may or may not know that the Department of Fish and Wildlife is involved in permitting processes when uh, facilities like this are proposed, so around siting and, and um, ways that they operate. Mm-hmm. And then we're also involved in the ongoing execution of those permits. So there are terms that each wind facility has to operate under, um, including conditions in which they're not allowed to operate, um, and a substantial monitoring component, um, like David was saying. So they both do studies to say, okay, how often do we think any given bird gets killed, as well as if they happen to take any threatened or endangered species or species of conservation concern, uh, it's mandatory that they notify us. So as far as we can tell, the turbines in Vermont have um, killed relatively small number of species, certainly not something that we would consider a a population-level impact. At a national level, um, that tracks with the data We think that, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, best estimate is probably about 200,000 birds a year are killed by wind turbines. Uh, Hmm. That compares to uh, buildings, you know, just glass and collisions with buildings, probably 600 million birds, so three times as many. And Hmm. domestic cats are estimated to kill about 2.4 billion. So about 70% of the human-caused deaths of birds are actually probably related to domestic cats. Wow, uh, there's a 
There is a scary number right there, and I know that's I, I have some uh, bird, you know, friends who are bird lovers, and they don't really like cats very much, <laughs> and uh, they like people who keep their cats if, if they're going to have cats, they make, make them indoor cats. But uh, absolutely, yeah, so, I'm, well, I'm staring at my two cats right now, but they're we love cats as long as you keep them inside. There's no problem whatsoever. All right, <clears throat> um, hey, I think we now have uh, Bill on the line from Burlington. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. Um, question for Dave and Doug about the uh, double-crested cormorants. Guys, are we any closer to coming up with some means of uh, a control method? I know this has been talked about for years, and I thought that this was happening in Quebec and Ontario, but could you bring us up to date? David? Uh, I was having a little bit of trouble hearing, uh, but the, uh, the, to the extent the caller is asking about kind of the impacts of double-crusted cormorants on fish populations in Lake Champlain, um, that, that has been an issue that the Department of Fish and Wildlife has been involved with, and there's been some control efforts as that population has grown, and there's special permits associated with that. But Doug's really probably in a better position to kind of describe that program than I am. Yeah, Doug, what can you... Uh, yeah. We have uh, a small number of specific islands owned by the state or its partners that we've managed for their value to colonial nesting birds and, and to restore those natural communities. What was happening in those instances is there were so many cormorants, they, they all nest in one space, um, and their droppings actually um, remove the native vegetation. So in the past, the department has done some control in those limited circumstances. There is in the works a broader effort through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, it's going through what they call their environmental impact assessment right now. They have a proposed rule that would allow states to apply for broader permits, including concern over fisheries being one of the reasons where you could permit a higher level of take of cormorants. So that's not something that's finalized at the national level yet. It's not something that Vermont has had conversations whether we would or wouldn't participate in that. But the, the college rate, some of the provinces to the north have just started some additional control measures just because cormorants really can, um, in localized areas, be present in huge numbers. Yeah, and I know uh, that, is a, that is a real problem in certain uh, spots on Lake Champlain. So thanks for... Uh, sharing that information with us uh um david mears uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you uh think that this law that uh, vermont has passed now uh, uh, regarding migratory uh, the protection of migratory birds and and standards for for uh, uh people who have impacts on the environment uh will, how, how much will this help <clears throat> well i Interestingly, I think one of the most important ways this law will help is in terms of raising awareness and, and keeping the focus on the need to be really thoughtful about how we live on the landscape in a way that doesn't impact birds. Um, the experience we've had in Vermont for the most part was that the prior law, that there was pretty high levels of compliance with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act anyway. So I don't think this was going to have a major change in terms of uh, changing existing behaviors of the wind companies or power companies or other industrial activities that might have an impact on birds. They, for the most part, have been complying, um, but it will ensure that they don't have any reason to backpedal. And I'll give an example of something where, um, you know, where the law, can, this kind of law can have an important effect. And, and Doug can speak to this as well. But 
frequently in Vermont, we find that people, when they know that there's a potential attack on birds, let's say you were going to take down an industrial chimney or tower uh, from a boiler operation that has chimney swifts nesting in it. And, uh, you, you know, let's say you're a school district and you, it's public dollars and you want to, you know, you don't want to violate the law, but you also want to spend public money or in a way that's not efficient. And sometimes just knowing that there's a law in place and since you can't kill the chimney swifts uh, is enough for, you know, the local uh, superintendent to go back to the school board and say, look, we have to wait until later in the summer to do this project because otherwise we'd have an impact on birds and violate the law. So it's yeah, not, yeah. Not, uh, not changing behavior in the sense of forcing a whole new set of practices, but it's reinforcing things that Vermonters are pretty comfortable doing anyway. Having concern and, and awareness of what's going on in our environment and the impacts that we have on those things, I, I, that's that's the uh, that's the real drift here, it seems. And uh, uh, David Mears of uh, Audubon, uh, Vermont, and uh, Doug Morin of the Vermont Department of Fish, Fish and Wildlife have been my guests for this segment of the Dave Grant Show. Gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Informative and uh, thoughtful conversation from both of you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we got about about blah, about to wrap up this edition of the Dave Graham Show here on WDEB FM and AM. Tune in again tomorrow for another edition of our program. And meanwhile, stay tuned now for Bill Sayer Common Sense Radio. And uh, have a good afternoon, everybody.